We'd like to thank Clio for their generous sponsorship of this podcast. Welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast, your monthly source for conversations and curated content to improve your law practice with your host, Rocky Deer. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. Anyone who's ever catched a movie knows that every great lawyer movie needs one or both of the following. That sounded very lawyerly, one or both, but you need one or both of the following. A compelling close, you know, like the one in The Rainmaker or A Time to Kill. We all remember that. And if you don't, go watch those movies and then you'll see what I'm talking about. Or a really killer cross. Like, remember the one in A Few Good Men? And of course, the one in Liar, Liar. I mean, Jim Carrey couldn't lie, folks. That was a great, great closing argument. But what if the cross was conducted by the judge? I mean, seriously, imagine if, imagine my cousin Vinny, if Joe Pesci as counsel for the two Utes had to give his questions to the judge and have that, that Herman Munster guy ask Marissa Tomei about pause attraction. It's totally possible that the Karate Kid would still be incarcerated. By the way, in case you're trying to play the game in your head, Joe Pesci starred in the movie JFK with, you guessed it, Kevin Bacon from A Few Good Men. So the universe has come full circle now. Now, the concept of the, quote, judge conducting a cross-examination might sound kind of foreign or strange to most litigators, but that is precisely what happens in many colleges and universities when they conduct disciplinary hearings, especially in sexual assault cases. Rather than having the accused directly cross-examine the witnesses, including the alleged victim, universities often require the accused to provide questions to the hearing officer, who then asks those questions to the alleged victim. Now, if this is raising some questions for you, including constitutional ones, then you're not alone. The March 2023 Texas Bar Journal features an article titled, Cross-Examination in Student Sexual Misconduct Hearings. The author is an in-house lawyer with the University of Texas system. He spent the bulk of his career focusing and specializing in Title IX hearings, and he's worked in the Attorney General's office, he's worked in big law, he knows his stuff. That author is Sean Flammer, and he is here with us today. Sean, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Sean, let's, let's first make clear your article in the Bar Journal and the insights you give us today. They are, I assume they're strictly your own. You're not speaking for the UT system. You're not speaking for any other state entity. Is that right? That's right. Okay. Okay. So this is, this is Sean talking, guys. This is not the UT system. Sean, first of all, why don't you tell us a little bit about the overview of Title IX? I don't know how many lawyers actually, I think we all kind of have a concept of what it is. But how does Title IX work? And kind of give us that overview before we really get into cross-examination in these situations. Sure. Well, I think when most people think of Title IX, when they hear those words, they think of sports. They think right. of uh, gender equity in sports. Right. While there are certainly, uh, that is certainly a component of Title IX, another component is a prohibition on, first of all, Title IX says that institutions that receive federal funds cannot discriminate on the basis of sex. And how that's been interpreted is, is mm -hmm. also to include sexual harassment. And so if you think about sexual harassment, the example I often give is, let's say you have two students in a chemistry lab sure. and one sexually harasses the other. Then the other, the, the, the victim uh, is not going to want to, that's going to affect that person's education. They're not going to want to come to the lab as much. They're not going to want to participate and they might not, they might drop out or something, right? So it has sure. adverse effects on them. And so that's an example of how sexual harassment and, disc and discrimination can affect a student in the educational setting. 
Okay. Now this would also cover not just sexual harassment, but I assume sexual assault as well. It does. It does. That's what your article talks about. So, so let's talk about title nine in that context. Is there, is there a special carve out for sexual assault cases or is that, is that a part and parcel of title nine? And your article is just talking about that specific type of case. So why don't I take a step back and frame it this way, that universities have students, they have, they have a student code of conduct that prohibits, for example, plagiarism, right? Right. Fighting, perhaps alcohol on campus, things of this nature. They also have sexual misconduct policies that prohibit students from engaging in sexual misconduct, whether that be sexual harassment, sexual assault, dating violence, stalking, or other types of sexual misconduct. And so the procedure that this article is talking about is how do we deal with that, right? How do mm-hmm. institutions of higher education deal with these allegations and student-on-student student um, sexual misconduct cases? And so the, pro- the process works like this. A complainant will make a complaint, sure. uh, and then the university will then investigate that complaint. Sure. And then after the investigation, oftentimes, and I'm sp- speaking in broad strokes here, of course, we'll have of course. a hearing. And it's at those hearings that this article, that's really what this article is about, is about the cross-examination at those hearings. Okay, so so you're talking about one student complains about another student. There's an investigation, and it sounds like in most cases, there's going to be a hearing after that to determine what the actual truth was. And this goes into the issue of the cross-examination by, I guess, the respondent against the complainant, right? Or vice versa, yes. Okay, so, so, so it does cut both ways. It cuts both ways. So how does the procedure work then? So, so I guess in most cases, the procedure then works, from what I understand from your article, that both parties would give their questions to the other party, to the hearing officer who then asks those questions. You as a party in that, in that particular disciplinary hearing do not have the right to ask questions directly of any witnesses. Well, let me take a step back because that's, that's partly correct. So okay. if we rewind the clock, let's go back to 2015 sure. or 2017, right? The, a lot of institutions, the way that they would handle it, if they were having hearings, is they would have a hearing. And then if, you know, witness number one, who is complainant's best friend testifies, mm-hmm. right. then th- that person, the, the students would actually be asking the questions to witness number one. Okay. Or witness number two. But when it came to the complainant and the respondent, then, and we should probably define those terms, the complainant is the person against whom that sexual misconduct is alleged to have occurred. And the respondent right. is the person that is being accused of committing the sexual misconduct. So, so to, to, put, it, to put, put it maybe in simpler terms for, for those of us that are, that are trying to follow this, the complainant is the alleged victim and the respondent is the alleged perpetrator, for lack of a better word. Alleged, meaning we don't know if they did it or not. And so when the complainant questions the respondent or when the respondent questioned the complainant, Mm. the procedure at that time was that those questions would be provided to the hearing officer and the hearing officer would ask those questions. So it's important to note the same questions are being asked, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, As, as if, right. There's, 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 typically is not, not a, you know, deleting of, of, of questions, right? There's no editing of it. It's just, it's just the questions are being asked. It's just not by the parties themselves to one another. Correct. And you can imagine why, right? And um, uh, because there, there are concerns that, uh, uh, that, that could re-traumatize victims, mm-hmm. right? If a respondent was uh, conducting a, a direct cross-examination of a complainant, that could re-traumatize the victim, and by, by having the system do that, be structured in that way is what I mean, 
then complainants are less likely to come forward. And those that do come forward are less likely to see the process through the entire way. And if that doesn't have, if, if complainants don't go through the process, then the university can't do anything about that respondent who, who has committed sexual misconduct, if indeed they have, right? right? But let me get back to that timeline. So that was the process back before there were Title IX regulations that went into effect in August of 2020. When those August 2020 regulations went into effect, that changed the game. And those, and those current regulations that we have right now do away with the process that I just described and instead mandate that both the complainant and the respondent have advisors, who, and those advisors can be attorneys, mm-hmm. and those advisors uh, have to ask the questions at the hearing. But your article also says that there's, I guess, been some kind of, I guess, a clawback from that to some degree, where now it's no longer required that they that the advisors be allowed to ask the questions. Now it's simply permissible. So it's now up to the universities to determine what kind of procedure they want to have. Do they want to allow advisors to ask those questions or not? Did I, did I interpret that correctly when I read the article? You did. You did. And so what happened in August of 2020, when the new Title IX regulations came out, they were widely criticized on this particular topic by okay. some and, and, and applauded by some, uh, some sure. others who, who, who were skeptical of the process. But yeah. in many, if you go back and look at the media articles back then, this cross-examination piece was, the, was a big headline uh, in lots of papers that covered the, the Title IX regulations. And so what's happened is now the Biden administration has proposed new Title IX regulations that are, at this point, only proposed. They're not final. Okay. Uh, we anticipate that final regulations will come out of Washington and the Department of Education uh, at some time, perhaps in May, is what they've signaled. Huh, okay. and, you, and you're exactly right, uh, Rocky, that, that these new regulations, if the proposed regulations are what is the final regulations, they, they allow the institution to choose whether to do what they're doing now or revert back to the process as I described. Got it. Honestly, I just asked that question to let you know that I did, in fact, read the article. People doubt whether I actually know how to read. And, <laughs> and now I, I told you that I, that I did read it. Now, when you come back, we're going to talk about due process. And that, that seems to be the, the real gravamen. And I only say that because I wanted to use the word gravamen while we're talking. But you know, I, I, we're going to come back and talk about the due process concerns that you, that you lay out in the article. Before we do that, though, we're going to take a quick break. And we'll be right back with Sean Flammer. So guys, recently I was reading Clio's Legal Trends Report and I found something surprising. There's a lot of turnover in the legal profession due to work-life balance issues. So I brought with me Joshua Lennon, lawyer in residence at Clio, to talk to us more about this. So Joshua, what's going on? Bottom line is firms that want to stick together need cloud-based legal practice management software. Lawyers using cloud-based software were 29% more likely to be happy in their professional lives. 34% more likely to be happy working at their firm, and they're 27% more likely to perform well at their jobs. Wow. Happy lawyers. Happy (laughs) lawyer, happy life. Who knew? So Joshua, if I want to dig into this a little deeper, where do I go? Oh, we make the report free for everyone at clio.com forward slash trends. That's C-L-I-O.com forward slash trends. The Texas Lawyers Assistance Program provides confidential help for Texas lawyers, law students, and judges who have problems with substance use and mental health issues. TLAP offers 24-7 confidential support and can connect you to peers and providers for assistance. TLAP can also connect you to the Sheeran Crowley Lawyer Wellness Trust, which provides financial help to Texas lawyers, law students, and judges who need treatment for substance use. 
depression, and other mental health issues, but can't afford to pay for services. Call or text TLAP anytime at 1-800-343-8527. And we're back with Sean Flammer talking about due process concerns relating to cross-examination in students' sexual misconduct hearings. It's, it, I have to admit, Sean, this was a much more fascinating topic than I first thought when I read the title. I was like, wow, the, the cross-examination, okay, this sounds, this sounds really heady and probably beyond my pay grade, but this was a very interesting topic. So you're specifically talking about due process concerns and, and how they impact. Does the issue of cross-examination touch on any other constitutional rights aside from due process that, that you've come across? Due process is really the hook. There have been some cases where some respondents have alleged the confrontation clause, the Sixth Amendment right to confrontation, sure. but that's been interpreted to not include these types of hearings. That's My understanding is that that is strictly a, a criminal law concept. And so really it is a due process issue uh, that has been litigated. That's why I kind of wanted to ask because you know, you've got due process and then you've got this confrontation clause scenario. Some of these though, I, I mean, and, and I don't know, you'll know this way better than I do, obviously, but to what extent does a finding in a university disciplinary proceeding have an impact on a subsequent potential criminal proceeding. So say a student is accused of sexual sexual assault, the university finds that sexual assault did occur, and now that gets, now that gets referred to, to prosecutorial authorities. At that point, does the Sixth Amendment, this, this right to confrontation, does that possibly come into play from what you've seen in the case law? I'm trying to understand your question. Do you mean that if there's a if, if if the student participates in the student hearing and then they go to the criminal court, is that is that used against the student? Is that what you mean? Well, well, th- th- there's that right. Th- there's a possible Fifth Amendment question, but really, what I'm talking about is this confrontation clause issue that you brought up. Because if I've been accused of misconduct and I'm not allowed to do the cross examination myself or through my advisor, then could the fact that I wasn't able to quote confront my accuser at the disciplinary hearing possibly impact my criminal case down the road? Has anybody ever made that nexus that one effectively impacted the other? I don't think so. I've never seen that before. And, and I will say that, that, that students have a right to participate in the student process and they also have mm-hmm. a right to not participate. Mm-hmm. And so students are not compelled to participate in the process if they don't want to. Okay. So here's, let's maybe talk about the actual conduct of the quote cross-examination itself. So you've got the complainant and the respondent, they submit their questions and the hearing officer asks the questions. Now, what if the answers themselves give rise to other questions in this? How does the mechanics of this work? Does say, if I'm the complainant, do I have, do I ask follow-up questions? Do I write them down and hand them to the hearing officer? How does that, how does that work in terms of the, the actual process of getting these follow-up questions answered? Exactly. Yeah. Follow-up questions go through the same exact process. So if, 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 the, if the complainant is cross-examining the respondent, then the process would be that the complainant would provide the questions to the hearing officer who would then ask the questions to the respondent. And then if there are follow-up questions, the complainant would then be given the opportunity to provide follow-up questions. And the same process would exist for the reverse when the re- respondent is cross-examining the complainant. So, so, so you do this effectively in real time as a hearing officer is asking the questions and as the answers are coming out, whichever party is supposed to be, quote, asking those questions is now writing out follow-up questions and handing, to, handing them to the hearing officer in real time. Then the hearing officer is the one asking those questions. Is that? Yeah. I mean, 
Really, I mean, the way, and I know this concept can be foreign for for many lawyers, right? Because this is not the way we think of cross examination. Sure. This is not the way we were taught. This is not. This is this. This is. It challenges some of the assumptions that we have with the effectiveness and the role of cross examination. Absolutely. Um, and so I, I definitely acknowledge that. But no, the the way it 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 works and it it can run very smoothly is it's just like. If an advisor was asking questions or the student was asking questions, it's just that instead of the words coming out of their mouth, they write it down and those words come out of the hearing officer's mouth. And so you go through the same process of uh, follow-ups and, and everything else. Interesting. Okay. So th- that's the way it's happening in real time. D- do you find that, or has anybody ever complained that it's not the same writing it down and giving it to a hearing officer versus the advisor or the students themselves? asking those questions and saying, okay, well, you said this happened, then what about this? You know, well, okay, let me cut you off the, you know, because in a typical cross-examination, it is a bit, it is a bit more confrontational. So at that point, you can kind of bring out, you can discredit the other side effectively by, by pointing out the weaknesses and, and, and the holes in their story, so to speak. That's ideally what you're trying to do. In this scenario, how does that how does that play out? Is it as effective a tool in that? Because I, I assume you've been through a few of these, so you probably know better than I do. Yeah, I've, I've been through countless uh, hearings. And what I'll say is that it, that it works very much the, the same way. Uh, it is it is less confrontational in that it's a different person asking the questions, right? It's mm-hmm. not the, the respondent asking the complainant the questions. Instead, it is the hearing officer. But the, again, the questions are the same. So if there's a point that a party wants to make, Challenging credibility, for example, challenging inconsistencies, challenging whatever they want to challenge that is that's relevant, they can just write it down and give it to the hearing officer and then they ask the question. And so it runs very similar to how it would go in a more direct way. It's it's just a different person asking the same words. There's a question I want to ask, which which may be a big one that that folks might have in their minds. And I'll give you a second to think about it, and then we're gonna we're gonna go. We're going to go take a quick break while you, while you kind of ponder this. It's probably something you've already, you've already faced before. The question really is, you know, in your article, you talk about wanting to protect the alleged victims, making sure that, making sure that they are not re-traumatized. And obviously, that's a very important question. To what extent does this hearing officer-led cross-examination, to what extent and how effective is that at also protecting people who might be wrongly accused? And I can see that, that other question popping up. So... Let's let's think about that question. And Sean, we'll be right back after after another quick break, and then we'll pick right back up. Stay with us, guys. Okay, and we're back with Sean Flammer. The question we had on the table was when you've got questioning led by the hearing officer as opposed to by a student advisor or the students themselves, one of the concerns in both the article and that we've talked about here is protecting the the potential victim or the alleged victim from being re-traumatized. To what extent and how effective is this system of hearing officer-led questioning? How effective is that at protecting the wrongly accused? So, Sean, you've been through a lot of these hearings. Can you kind of talk to us about that? So, what what I'll say is, you know, I do a lot of trainings for folks, and what I all for our hearing officers, for example. And one of the things that I often say is that we want to honor the fact that this is likely a major life event for both the complainants and the respondents. Sure. And so this process works the same for both sides. And for someone who's accused, 
whether it be a, like you, you use the word a false accusation, whether it be a false accusation or whether it be a not false accusation, mm-hmm. it's still a very traumatic experience for them as well. Sure. And so by having this process uh, where the complainant is, in your example, we're talking about the cross-examination of the respondent. Sure. By not having the complainant directly cross-examine the respondent, that's a benefit for the respondent too. And so this works both ways for both the respondent and the complainant. In the article, you talk about you talk about how when you had advisor-led or student-led cross-examination, it led to a decrease in the number of complaints and the number of complainants who were willing to see the process through, even if they made the initial complaint. Again, I'm, I'm trying to get to the counter-argument so we can kind of address that here. There are some who would say, well, maybe that's, maybe that's a sign that those were not legitimate complaints. And that's why this new system has scared away potential false accusations from coming to light. I want to get your thoughts on that. You know, again, having been through this a few times, when you see a decrease in complaints, has there been data on, on how many of those were genuine, how many were not? You know, can you walk us through kind of what's behind those numbers in terms of the decrease? Well, you know, it's hard to have you know, data on that. Right. I'm sure. Um, and, and I, and I don't, I don't know of any conclusive data on that besides what I, what I cited in the, sure. in the article, which is the department of education saying what they heard from institutions, but I, but it, but it makes sense. It makes sense that it, when, when I say it makes sense, what I mean is it makes sense that if the process is arduous mm-hmm. for a complainant, then they may not want to come forward and go through that arduous process. Right. And so so I, I think that makes sense. So I think if we can make the process as ideal as possible for everyone mm-hmm. in a way that allows the institution to respond to incidents of sexual misconduct in an appropriate way after making sure that it actually is sexual misconduct, right? That, that's the goal that we want to achieve. To what extent, or, or I guess, how much do you think this might have an impact in, in criminal cases? Do you think there's something that criminal courts should learn from what the Title IX situation has been? Again, with the with the idea of not re-traumatizing potential victims, you know, do, do we need to reform the way we do, you know, sexual assault cases in criminal court? Do you have any thoughts on that? I think what I would say is that I, I'm not a criminal lawyer, but I think there are definitely some some thoughts to explore here mm-hmm. as to whether or not. Uh, cross-examination and the direct way that we do it in the criminal court system uh, mm-hmm. is actually the best vehicle to obtain the truth. And I think there's some law review articles uh, that that talk about this, and it's probably worth exploring more. Well, it's it's interesting you say law review articles because, guys, in case you didn't know, Sean Sean graduated Order of the Coit from UT Law School, so it makes it makes total sense that you'd be right. You'd be reading the law review articles. I I I don't have the the bandwidth for that, but uh, obviously, I'm, I'm sure you've you, you've done a lot more research on that than I have. So, so the, the, now in in your article, you talk a bit about the Walsh case. It's a it's a Fifth Circuit appeal that that goes into the due process concerns, and so getting getting now more into the case law, can you walk us through that case? You know, you you talk about it, you know, briefly in the article. Can we maybe get a little bit deeper? What were the facts, and what was the court's reasoning in holding that due process is not infringed by having this this hearing officer-led cross-examination process? Sure. So in that case, the Walsh case was a case about a faculty member who took, I, I believe it was a medical student, uh, along with him to a conference. And at the conference, there was a gala, there was drinking, 
and there was alleged sexual harassment uh, of, of a female student, the response of the male faculty member was, well, it was all consensual. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a hearing to terminate the faculty member, and the student did not, uh, was not there at the hearing to, to testify. And so the allegation was that the faculty member did not have, that it was a due process violation to terminate him uh, because he did not have the opportunity to cross-examine her. And what the Fifth Circuit said is that, that it was a violation, that he should have had an opportunity to cross-examine her, but the court went further and said it didn't need to be a direct cross-examination. It could have been an indirect cross-examination is something that they say in their, in their language. Is that dicta or was that part of the court's holding? Well, that's interesting you, you say that because that, that argument that it was dicta was later used in a, in a subsequent case called Van Overdam, which okay. involved a student-on-student case. And so that was, that was a question. And in that case, uh, a, um, I won't go too far into the details, but essentially one student accused another of sexual assault. Mm-hmm. And, and the institution suspended the, the respondent in that case, and he sued. And his argument, one of his arguments was that his due process, were via, his due process rights were violated because at the hearing, he did not have a, an opportunity to directly cross-examine the complainant or have his advisor do so, but instead had to go through the process that you and I have been talking about where Mm -hmm. those questions are asked indirectly through the hearing officer. And the court said that is not a due process violation to have this indirect cross-examination that universities often employ. And so the Fifth Circuit in those two cases, the end result is they're saying that it is okay, that that is not a violation of due process to have this indirect cross-examination. Do you happen to remember the court's reasoning in both of those cases as to why it's not a due process violation? So, yeah, they, they held it wasn't. Do we know why they held that? What was the court's kind of constitutional logic that they used to arrive at that conclusion? Well, I think it's it, it's kind of what, you know, I, I was saying earlier that it's it's the same questions being asked. It's just whose voice do they come out of, right? If, if mm-hmm. and, and so... The, that that conf- that confrontation, that asking challenging questions, that asking questions that go to credibility, those types of questions are still being asked. It's just a matter of whose mouth is are they coming out of. It sounds, and 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 I'm I'm reading into it obviously, but it sounds like what the court is effectively saying is that is that we're looking to the substance of the questions themselves. You don't have a right to confront them with accusatory language or maybe a harsh tone. At the end of the day, it's really about the questions being asked. We're looking at the questions, making sure the questions are answered. It's not about the type of the type of tone that might be used in in an adversarial cross examination. Would you Would you agree with that, or do you think there's a little bit something deeper into what the courts are saying? I think that's fair. Okay, interesting. Before we sign off, in your experience with with dealing with these types of cases, you know. Because it, it sounds like from the article, you feel like this has been a very effective tool, this, this hearing officer-led cross-examination. You found it to be an effective tool. You know, would you agree with that? And you know, with, with these new regulations coming out, are you, kind of, are you kind of hoping they go one way or the other? Or are, are there any reforms that you would like to see in the way these types of hearings are conducted? Or do you like it the way it's been, it's been done this whole time you know, with hearing officer-led cross-examination? Again, these are your views, not that of the UT system. Sure, sure. No, I, I think I think it works. It, it, this process works well, I think. And while, you know, if folks want to propose new ways to improve, I'm all ears. I always am. But I think that it, it, it does a good job of balancing the various competing interests. 
of making sure that we get the right decision, that we do it in a process that honors and respects both the complainant and the respondent. And again, respects that this is a major life event for both of them, treats them both equally and tries to allow them both to say everything that they want to say and have all the critiques and all the credibility challenges and all the questions they want to ask. We want to make sure that they leave it all out in the field, so to speak. And that at the end of the day, both sides leave the process thinking to themselves, okay, it was a fair process. And that's that's our goal. Obviously, one person is usually very unhappy at the end of sure. the day. But of if we can achieve that, that's our goal. That's what we're shooting for with every single one of these cases. Very well. Well, Sean, that, that is the end of our time. And this has been this has been a very interesting discussion. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us, sharing your insights and and giving us a reminder and, and a and a new perspective on cross-examination. This was fascinating. It was a pleasure being with you. Thank you. And of course, I want to thank you for tuning in. And I encourage you to stay safe and be well. If you like what you heard today, please rate and review us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Until next time, remember, life's a journey, folks. I'm Rocky Deer, signing off. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Go to TexasBar.com slash podcasts. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find both the State Bar of Texas and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the State Bar of Texas, Legal Talk Network, or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.